0: Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 34 is our scripture passage. Matthew 6, from verse 19 to verse 34. Matthew 6, verse 19, this is the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. That's our scripture passage. Based on the Word of God, we also echo that Word of God in the Heidelberg Catechism. This evening, we focus our attention on the Eighth Commandment. That's our text. And we will see what the Catechism says about it in Lord's Day 42, page 892 in the back of our Trinity Psalter hymnal, 892, Lord's Day 42. 42. I will read the questions if you could please respond by reading the answers. So first of all, this question. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment?
1: He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, which governing authorities punish, but in outside theft also includes all evil tricks and schemes Designed to get our neighbors' goods, stops whether by force or means that appear to them, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless pondering of his gifts.
0: So what does God require of you in this commandment?
1: That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. That's Lord's Day 42.
0: beloved congregation, of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his Eighth Commandment, brothers and sisters, the Lord enters upon another aspect of our life. The Heidelberg Catechism brings such matters as money, trade, labor, and possessions to our attention. Those are sensitive issues, We all have our share of dealings with money, labor, and possessions. About these matters, we tend to feel rather cool, fair, or realistic for this day and age. And now the Lord approaches us this afternoon and addresses us with the command You shall not steal then our first reaction may be, I know, I don't steal. We may be able to think of someone else who steals or has stolen, but we steal? No, we don't. We might even come to think of a greedy man, a miser or so, who thinks of himself only, but we? Well, Let's watch, first of all, that we do not stand before God this afternoon as the Pharisee who is content with his own record, but whose focus is elsewhere. Also, the eighth commandment, beloved, must be seen in the light of our deliverance. I am the Lord your God who redeemed you. We are placed before the command of the Lord that we may heed them in thankfulness. As the Lord Jesus put it, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Matthew 19, verse 17. And the examples of everyday life from the days in which the Heidelberg Catechism was written remind us of our daily dealings in the world of money and possessions. In this world, the Lord wants us to be unique, different from what dealings we see in our time. We have learned Christ. He did not seek himself. He did not come to defraud others for selfish reasons, but he served his sender. God, in all things. He contrasted the spirit of mammon, the spirit of materialism, that is, with the spirit of stewardship. Instead of human rights, he proclaimed a life by grace. Rather than focusing on getting, he advocated giving. His own life in love for the Father and for us including his death and resurrection, is the basis for our life in obedience to the Eighth Commandment. So I summarize the message of this afternoon as follows. With all our possessions, we live by God's grace. And then we pay attention to three points. The way we see our possessions, the way we get our possessions, and the way we use our possessions. So I summarize it as follows with all our possessions we live by God's grace. First of all, the way we see our possessions. In order that we may receive the eighth commandment as law of redemption, brothers and sisters, we must see it in light of the heading of the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of of the slavery of Egypt. I took you away from tyranny, from slavery. I called you from being have-nots to becoming possessors of the promised land. I bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey of which I am the proprietor, and I bestow upon you all that you need for body and soul. And just before the Lord's people enter the land, he reminds them of this by the mouth of Moses, his servant. God's redemption and grace should reflect also in their attitude towards the neighbor, the poor, the stranger, the laborer, the widower, the widow, the oppressed. Now, it may seem somewhat strange, beloved, to take our starting point for dealing with the eighth commandment also from the moment of their entry. Is the fact that they are called to remove the Canaanites from their land, occupy these people's houses, lands, and cities, not flying in the face of this commandment? Is that not theft on a large scale? Well, no, it is not. The same Moses who conveyed the many laws for social and economic life also informs his people of the background, the history of the Lord's ownership. In Genesis 1, he created the world and all that is in it. In paradise already, the Lord gave the earth and all its fullness to man. He took Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord provided food and drink, the land and the resources for man to use it in his service, under his dominion. The land was pleasant and rich. Indeed, a land in which the river Pishon flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Now he is the same Lord who gave the land of Canaan to Israel. Is he not allowed to do with what is his? He is the Lord who drove Adam from paradise and the Canaanites from their land because of sin. He is the owner who is entitled to give it to Israel as an inheritance. Israel, however, was never allowed to forget that it received the land as a gift. They needed reminders time and again that the land was the Lord's. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, says the Lord Almighty. Israel needed this reminder by her prophets badly. As Hosea puts it in Hosea 2 verse 8, She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. How come they were inclined to use God's possessions in such a misdirected way? That was because it's in man's blood to do so. Ever since the day that Adam and Eve defied the Lord's ownership, defied the rules for the garden, which the steward was called to observe, ever since that day, man is inclined to to misappropriate inclined to steal you know people may say he who steals is a thief what we learn from genesis 3 however is the reality that we by nature are thieves that's why we steal you shall not steal beloved That has everything to do with the way you see your possessions. You know, we sometimes say, Yeah, but I honestly earned it. I can do with it as I please. The Lord, however, says, Who gave you life and breath and strength and a clear mind? Is that not from me? What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. That applies to our entire income, all our goods and possessions. It's from God. It's that rule the Lord taught his people Israel with the command regarding tithing. They paid their tents not for as rent for the use of the land, thus to use the rest for their own pleasure, But their tithes were the confession of the steward to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Deuteronomy 10 verse 14. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the fields are mine. Psalm 50, verse 10. Hence the Lord Jesus upheld the law from the beginning when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God, and he will take care of your food and drink. The silver and gold which he gives in that kingdom, of that too, he says, They are mine. Everyone who withdraws his possessions, therefore, from their service in that kingdom, acting as if they are his own absolute possession, is a thief. He steals from God. Do you realize, beloved, why the Lord says to each and every one of us, you shall not steal? Only when we become to, come to that awareness, we turn to Jesus Christ, our Savior. On him was the punishment, the curse for our theft. He was robbed of all his possessions. He had no house. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Matthew 8, verse 20. Others took care of him and supported him. Yet all that and much more was taken away when he was put on the cross, naked. Hence, we are reminded not only of God's ownership of everything, but also that on our money, our car, our house, our jewelry, our land, yes, on all our possessions is sticking the blood of Jesus Christ. We are stewards, beloved, and whatever is entrusted to us comes to us by grace in Jesus Christ. For our sake, he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. That's how the light of Christ's redemption shines on this eighth commandment, so that we would learn to see our possessions in this way. All things are yours, but you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 23. We come to our second point the way we get our possessions. So, is that how you receive your possessions, beloved, in acknowledgement of Christ, the heir of all things, Hebrews 1, verse 2? Are you aware that the money you spend in the grocery store is the Lord's? That of the money you pay for a car, a house, your furniture, he says, your silver and gold is mine. In regard to all our goods and possessions, our income and savings, the decisive rule is for or against Christ. We possess it for him and his kingdom, or we claim it selfishly and are against him, thus stealing what we have. The Heidelberg Catechism draws attention to this as well, where it speaks about the possibility of abuse, of greed, and of squandering of his gifts. Do you realize that the money you spend on sinful pleasures and entertainment is money wasted on smoking, immoderate drinking, and the like, is money spent in transgression, of the eighth commandment in neglect of His grace. Faith and money, piety and property, beloved, are closely related. Money and possessions have everything to do not only with this life, but also with the life to come. Our savings and salvation are clearly connected when we say with the psalmist of Psalm 17, save me from those whose only measure is this life's portion, nothing more. But you, the Lord Jesus says, to redirect our attention from such concern for this life's portion, you with your silver and gold, with your possessions, your income, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things like groceries and clothing and housing will be yours as well. You know, that almost sounds like some sales gimmick. Telling you that if you buy this or that brand or item, you will get such and such for free. Well, indeed. That's living by grace in the kingdom of our God. That's how Israel entered Canaan too. The Lord promised them houses, vineyards, and prosperity if they would acknowledge his kingship. Today too, we do our business and landscaping and flower enterprises, our driving and dealing, our office tasks and housework in the service of Of God, and we receive our eating and drinking by grace. You see, brothers and sisters, that puts our silver and gold, our money, and our possessions in an entirely different light. Then we learn not to work for the money, for the possessions, but to receive the money, the possessions for our work in the kingdom of God. We will have to learn that ourselves. We will have to teach our children this too. We have to work indeed, for that's our calling, our cultural mandate, but we do not work for the money, but for the Lord. That will determine our attitude at work our zeal to do our utmost, not in order to get a raise, but rather because we love to serve the Lord. That will determine the use of the money we receive in that employment, distributing that money over our budget according to the priorities in his kingdom. As I said, beloved, our children need to learn this too. They're growing up with the impression as if we can afford everything. An outing here and a trip there, $10 here and $20 there, and at all with an ease as if that's what our money is for. And of course, we may enjoy our holidays, our outings, but for the purpose of refreshing ourselves for the service of God's kingdom. That way, the money they earn too does not get a purpose in itself to be spent on themselves, but they learn to save these monies to be put toward their calling in their life in God's kingdom, toward their career, toward their further studies. It's the bonus for our stewardship. Now, we are not living not for the bonus, but for the stewardship. Thus in our thinking, our prioritizing, our daily pursuits, the kingship of God comes first. He entrusted his kingship to Jesus Christ under whose government we live by grace. He governs all things in heaven and on earth for the sake of the church. He also uses governments for the well-being and welfare of the pursuits of of his citizenship in this kingdom. We should therefore not only pray for these governments, that we may have a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness, but also pay to these governments the taxes and revenues that we are due to pay. Then it may be true that they are asking too much or that they spend it wrongly. Nevertheless, we may not withhold unlawfully taxes from those to whom taxes are due. All efforts to improve our income, to increase our possessions at the expense of the obedience to the Lord of the kingdom is income obtained by theft." that is, by unbelief and lack of trust, that he will add these things to us. Now, that's living concretely from the promises of the gospel. Pursuing the kingship which Christ obtained through the cross, beloved, in this way of stewardship and obedience means, to mention the last example, for the employers as well that they reflect this mind of Christ. Christ delegated his authority to governments, also to employers. He entrusted into their care as managers in the kingdom the needs for their employees' daily living. If they ignore this calling, however, and shun their responsibility, The woes of the covenant will come upon them. Look, James writes in chapter 5, verse 4, the wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. These rich, in James' days, were not managers for the Lord seeking his kingdom, obeying his kingship, but they promoted their own interests, their own pleasures and pursuits, building their own ego instead of the honor of the king. That attitude invokes God's curse. The Lord has said the worker deserves his wages. And then note that it says, the worker deserves his wages. The Lord is concerned with the man, and so should be the employer. He should look at the man's condition and position, the man's situation and circumstances, etc. So we could add more aspects, brothers and sisters, considering this life in his kingdom, the main call of obedience, however, the foremost appeal for repentance pertains to our position before God. How do we see Him? How do we receive our work, our place, our calling from Him? How do we receive our lives, goods and possessions by grace from Him? that will also determine how we use his gifts. Our third point, the way we use our possessions. Answering that question, brothers and sisters, you may think we live of our income. We use our money, our possessions. True. Yet, how do we then show that we are true stewards? On the basis of Ephesians 4, verse 28, the Heidelberg Catechism says that instead of stealing for ourselves, we should work that we may be able to give to those in need. Christ became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich, says Paul. That's his mind, his attitude toward us who were very needy. He could have become rich quite easily if he had charged money for every healing and miracle. He was served as well by many well-to-do ladies, and rich men followed him. He however did not seek to become rich himself, but to enrich others. He drew his disciples' attention to a widow as well, whose giving pursued the seeking of God's kingdom which was worth to her the livelihood of a whole day, as it were. She sacrificed an empty stomach for a day. She knew that God is not concerned, first of all, with how much we give, but rather from how much we give. If we have that mind, beloved, we are not primarily concerned with how much our possessions could increase, but rather with what we could do with God's blessings. Our time as well as our nature are inclined to use every skill, moment, and ploy to enrich ourselves. In the mind of the Christian, however, God should be foremost and the question of what we could do with his gifts and blessings for his service in church and kingdom. Christ places us for this choice very concretely by telling us that we can serve only one master, God or money, who therefore is first and foremost in our life. God if God is not first and foremost in my budgeting and spending priorities, how could he ever be first in my life? For many Christians, however, the service of, to God is rather cheap in regards to their giving and consequently also regarding their love. Beloved, You have not so learned Christ. If the love of God and for God is not in us, then we will perish with our money. If our money and possessions are no longer viewed in the light of eternal life, it has become an idol already. The conversion to God begins in the heart, but it shows in our life. Grace in Christ consumes all covetousness in the Christian. When the people asked John the Baptist what they had to do to be saved, he told the rich to share their clothing, the tax collectors not to collect more than they were required to, and the soldiers no longer to extort money but to be content with their pay. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. It says in Proverbs 19, verse 17, and he will reward him for what he has done. When you receive more, you can give away more. You know, in catechism class, I always shared this story with my students. The well-known Methodist preacher John Wesley Preached on the same commandment and said to his congregation, In an honest way, you should try to earn as much money as you can. Everybody nodded. Then he continued, You should save as much as you can. Amen, amen, the people said in response. And then he added, after you have earned as much as you can and saved as much as you can, you must give as much as you can. After the service, his people told him that they liked the sermon, but that he spoiled it with his third point. You see what I'm saying, beloved? Unbelief says, "Get what you can get." while faith says, "Give what you can give. Not only in catechism class, but also at home, our children should learn how to allocate from their earnings in their paper route, their summer job, their babysitting money, a certain amount for the Lord. That is difficult for them as it is to us, for we are all inclined to be selfish by nature. The disciples responded in the same way when the Lord Jesus exposed the rich young man's attachment to his money. Astonished, they said afterwards, who can then be saved? Then Jesus looked at them and said, with man that is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, verse 25. Well, beloved, Is that not the case with all things? Does faith not require the impossible all the time? That's why it is so important that we remember the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel. It redeems us. It delivers us. It also comforts us as also the Lord Jesus did in this instance when he said, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, we thank you for coming to us with the gospel. We thank you for exposing us as to what we are like and how we are inclined. But we thank you even more for what you have given in Jesus Christ, what you held up to us as our original calling and what you have held up to us, who you are as proprietor, as owner of all things in this world. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of your words. We thank you for the power of such a new life. And we thank you, Father, that we don't have to attempt this in our own strength, but that you gave us the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that you renew us in his image, and that you will help us and guide us and show us how we are to budget, how we are to prioritize, how we are to find joy in giving rather than craving and getting all the time. We pray, Father, that you will help us to bear fruits to the proclamation of your word this evening and help us then to serve you and not money,